Jan, I'm very excited to welcome John Julian to the podcast, um, our first official guest, and really, I wouldn't have it any other way. John, I was thinking about how I would introduce you. I'm going to throw a bunch of titles. Please respond or fill in as required, but I'm going to say social worker. I'm going to say sociologist. I'm going to say mental health clinician. I'm going to say teacher of mindfulness, teacher of mindful self-compassion. I'm going to say partner, father, mentor, uh, friend. Have First of all, welcome. And have I missed any titles there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, compassionate conservationist. Ah, very, very good, compassionate conservationist. So I'll edit that. Said so they all, <laughs> they all link together. <laughs> I, I probably won't. But uh, welcome. It's just a delight to to have you have you with us. It's always a delight to talk to you, Michael. It's always a delight. Very good. I will transfer that fifty dollars electronically after this program. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Jed. I hope your listeners know that I know the both of them. <laughs> I, I should say, if this discussion interview does have somewhat of a familial vibe, this is not the first time that we've met this man. And depending on how this discussion goes, hopefully it won't be the last. But look, we we should uh, explore that as as we go on. But I'm curious, just as a kickoff question, with all those titles or all those those things that I mentioned, what is a what's a common thread for you if you look back now on your on your life or your career? What's a common thread between all of those things? I don't know that I could have answered that question, you know, fifteen or twenty years ago, but I would say a common thread now is compassion and caring. Do you feel like that has changed or evolved for you? Um, that's that's changed enormously over the years. That that has evolved in me as you know. I've been I've had a mindfulness practice for decades, and at the beginning of that, I was I was quite actually rigid. You know, sitting for forty forty five minutes a day, sometimes twice a day, mm. uh, and then I picked up you know, more of the compassion side in, in the 1990s in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and then in the 2000s with Kristen Neff um, and also more lately with Paul Gilbert. And as you do that, you have to practice it and you become softer um, mm. and more more real, far more real. And more assertive and stronger and willing to stand up for what you think needs to be done in order to have a more compassionate world that is has in, increased social justice and fairness in it. 
So I, I think, yeah, it, it's helped me to evolve enormously into having a life which I think is far more real. Uh, where I live and in my relationships with my close family and friends, of which I think you and Jad I would label as friends as well. I'm curious, John, um, uh, how did you kind of get into all of this sort of um, area? Like what what originally drew you into the world of kind of mindfulness practice and then later compassion um, and practices? Because you started, the, the, from my recollections, we, we met originally through me attending mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and then mindful self-compassion with you and then later became... Uh, you became my supervisor through through the counselling work I do, and my understanding was in your you, you got into Buddhism and Zen practice um, many many years ago, long before mindfulness became the kind of fashionable word that it is now. I mean, I was at the supermarket today and I saw a mindful parenting magazine. There's mindful bloody everything these days. <laughs> that's, that's a bit of that's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't yeah. it? Be a mindful parent, like. <laughs> Full of false promise. It's the magazine that you read while your kids are running around in the middle of the road. (laughs) (laughs) They called it a coping parent, the coping parent. parent. (laughs) I'm currently writing the not coping parent manual. So there was a question there, Jad. <laughs> there was a question there. Yeah. Long, long before it was fashionable, how did you get into to the world of mindfulness and meditation and compassion-based practices? What was the kind of starting point for you? Yeah, the starting point was the recognition that I had a degree of anxiety and that I was also fairly driven to achieve uh, things in the social justice world and as I was uh, reforming mental health services in Victoria in the mid-1980s, I found myself getting quite anxious. And so I thought meditation could help. It was meant to bring calmness and things like that. And so I started looking around and tried to practice meditation and as I was, you know, I was looking around, I found people who say, well, you can use crystals to meditate. And then another person was using candles and another person was using a lot of smoke, it seemed. (laughs) 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 Uh, Which I didn't mind too much because I smoked in those days and (laughs) it was hard to see. (laughs) And so I tried all of these things and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd sit and, I couldn't really get it or what happened because my mind seemed to be very busy and it would keep wandering off and I couldn't even know those words, that wandering mind. No, I kept going and eventually I found the Victorian Buddhist Society was running a six-week course on meditation and I went to that. And that was a Vipassana-style meditation just on the breath. It was very strict. And I sat there six weeks for about an hour and a quarter each week of course, the thoughts went away because my knees were so sore. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else. So there was no other thoughts in my head about, oh, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> 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 so anyway, I kept going at it. I didn't keep going there. 
Um, I would ring up and talk to some of the monks from time to time about practice, and they were very helpful. And then um, I uh, took an interest in Zen and was a, a distant member of a Zen centre. And I was sitting, sort of, you know, trying to sit. I'd sort of bought it out from the wardrobe, being a wardrobe meditator, you know, meditating. Like, what would they think if they knew I was meditating? I start to think I'm a bit of a weirdo. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I got in contact with this Zen teacher in Australia and said, I need help. I'm doing this stuff and I'm getting in deep, uh, I think. And uh, he helped me by email. Mm. You spend a whole week writing this detailed, detailed email of all of these insights you've had about your life and on and on and on. And you send it off and you wait there with bated breath for the reply and the, the reply comes back and you open up the email. So. <laughs> A very <Damn> then <laughs> response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, hmm, hmm, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> um, but it was working and it helped me. And so I found just sitting by myself with this Theravadan style and Zen style uh, to be a bit cold. And so I wanted to get some more warmth, as I thought of it then, into my meditation. I didn't really know the word compassion, mm. but I went and checked out about 20 teachers and found one who seemed reasonably good, and I chose that. It was part of the Sakya lineage in t Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, this is in the 90s. So then I um, was quite happily practicing away, going on retreats, 10-day re silent retreats and so forth. And I really enjoyed it. I really developed. And I think I started to become sane. And then in 1998, I was invited to uh, train the trainer in Shamantha meditation, uh, known as Calm Abiding. I went and learned how to be a teacher and was told I could start teaching straight away. And I've been teaching ever since. And then uh, I was working at Monash University and was trained there as a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist. And that was fascinating. I had been left some money by an uncle and I used that to go to America to do training in California with John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santorelli in mindfulness-based stress reduction in 2005 and started teaching that. And so I taught that and a mixture of that and MBCT occasionally with that. Now, in 2003, I spent 10 days in a, a group setting with Marshall Rosenberg on nonviolent communication and learned a lot from him in terms of my Buddhist practice, especially in terms of um, skillful speech, one part of the Eightfold Noble Path. At work, um, I had a job where I was responsible for the professional development and training of one third of the state's mental health workforce. So I thought I'd teach mindfulness and self-compassion and get other people in to do all the other stuff. And uh, around 2007, 2008, because I'd been learning compassion 
as part of the Tibetan practices. And I, I, I realized that by warmth, I meant compassion, but I also was developing other components of compassion. And so I had developed up a version of the eight-week course, MBSR, MBCT, in a briefer version over eight weeks for mental health staff. And I was teaching it in 2008. In that course, I decided to change session six to include a loving kindness meditation related to compassion, of course. And I'm teaching it to these people, mostly nurses in the group. And at the end of this traditional loving kindness meditation where you bring kindness to yourself first, loving kindness to yourself first before you give it to others, the Tibetans understand you have to do it that way, otherwise you burn out. And at the end of that little session, about 15 to 20% of the staff in that room were having symptoms of panic, mm-hmm. of being kind mm-hmm. to themselves. Mm-hmm. So then I really started thinking and looking around the world and then came across Kristen Neff's work. Went over to America again and, and did one of their first ever intensives on mindful self-compassion and came back and started teaching a four-week version uh, and as they developed up the eight-week program. And then in 2014, I was invited to the first ever training of mindful self-compassion program. Um, So I flew over to there and got to Boston and out the back of Boston to the Barrow Institute, absolutely fabulous place. And we spent six days there, I think, uh, going through the program, learning it, teaching it, uh, teaching it in front of senior teachers, you know, so that we got good feedback and support and development and then came back and I was able to start teaching. Uh, And then I was just, I wanted to, I really made sure I had my skills in there for mindful self-compassion as a teacher. And after I think another year or so, I asked um, the director of the Centre for Mindful Self-Compassion whether he'd mentored me through the certification process, which he readily agreed to. Uh, And that was a lovely process. Um, That was a really wonderfully warm and educational process. And so I became a a certified teacher of mindful self-compassion. And of course, in Australia, when I got back, I and Kirsty Arben did the first two mindf- intensive mindful self-compassion programs in Australia. So this was a, a real development and an honour to be able to sort of essentially, with Kirsty Arben, uh, introduce mindful self-compassion mm-hmm. to Australia. And... Uh, then I've just sort of kept teaching it. I haven't sort of made a big deal about it. I just keep teaching it and plugging away. And then here <laughs> we are, Mike and I, of course, having yeah. attended your um, your program and, and um, have met one another through there and, and, and all that's unfolded since then. A huge and extensive history. I'm intrigued now, John. There's, you know, so many practices you've explored and enjoyed incredible i mean it's a who's who list of some of the big names in the world of kind of mindfulness i'm sure many listeners will be familiar with some of them 
It's it's one of those things that I feel very honoured and fortunate to have been able to have direct training by people like in nonviolent yeah. communication, Marshall yeah. Rosenberg, you know, and also directly with John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santorelli, a very large group, and twice, you know, once over there and then in Australia, then with Kristen Neff and mm. Christopher Germer um, directly, and um, then doing my certification with yeah. Steve. Uh, it's been a wonderful um, opportunity in life that uh, has, you know, I, I just have so much gratitude for. John, the, the kind of idea behind the show is to explore that difference between the, the kind of clinical understanding and the, and the practice. And I'm curious if you feel like sharing any story of how perhaps you've encountered suffering in your own life and utilize some of these skills to relate to that in a new way or to navigate your way through that difficult time. Is there anything you want to share uh, about that? Oh, just my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you become, you become braver um, because you can provide compassion to your own self you're not worried about admitting to mistakes because you can give yourself a bit of compassion. So that makes you a more honest and I think reliable person mm. that people know where they stand with you because they know that you're honest. If you make a mistake, you're going to say, I made a mistake. Yeah. You know? um, how do we solve it? And um, so that's a really, I think, a big thing. Um, that happens gradually you you become softer but more vibrant it's it's a bit like you know the best analogy is becoming like a tree or a very large bamboo mm. you can you can have enormous strength and regenerative ability and sustainability and at the same time be able to bend and be very flexible, able to take everything that's thrown at you, mm -hmm. almost, almost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, in up until a year and a half ago, I'd had six or seven very, very tough years. I don't think anybody really knew. My mother had dementia and was still living at home and I had to drive up there every weekend you know it's 350 kilometers away and I have to drive up there and drive back <laughs> while I was looking after teenage son who was getting into more and more trouble in life and uh, then I got mum into a nursing home about five years ago but uh, one of my sons was still in enormous trouble and so I sort of uh, had to stand, you know, side by side with him as his addiction got worse and worse uh, until he hit rock bottom and could see that he had to change and uh, stand by him up to, up to that point where he went into treatment and things like that. And really the only way I got through that was because of mindfulness and... Um, self-compassion 
because the self-compassion, you come to fully understand that these are patterns. They're not our fault. It's not his fault. We can start to look behind the behaviour into the patterns that have occurred in this person's life. You know, like, like my son had, um, had a girlfriend die from stomach cancer when he was 17. Mm. And then between that age and the age of 28, I think the total count was in the end he had 14 friends die. And, and a large number of them, three quarters at least, were from suicide. Now, uh, that's a hell of a burden, yeah. a hell of a burden. And, uh, yeah, so he's, he sort of ended up with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, you know, he's now doing well. Mm. But it's been a hell of a journey. But I've come through it. I've come through it. Uh, that self-compassion, though, you know, I was able to, if I needed something, I, I realised I could bring it to myself. And uh, that was very important and um, very, very important. So, it, it, you know, to me personally, it's helped me through extraordinarily difficult times in life and was crucial um, to, you know, my keeping my sanity um, and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I'm... Um, concerned that we may be jumping ahead somewhat in we're going to have listeners that might not have the knowledge or the understanding of compassion. So I'm going to frame a question. I'm going to simply ask for those less familiar, John, what is compassion? And with all that you've learned, what is self-compassion? Okay. So compassion, I think, is an interesting concept it's different from empathy because it's really empathy plus um love mm. and it's a very important thing the one that i use at the moment uh, a definition by Jazeri in the Compassion Cultivation Training Program from um, Stanford University, I think. And it goes something like that. Compassion is this sort of multidimensional process that's comprised of, um, here's the fingers, Michael, four key components. Okay. John is listing things on his fingers, <laughs> bearing in mind that this is an auditory <laughs> podcast. <laughs> He's not giving me the finger. Mind you, that's happened. <laughs> so there are four key components. And the first component is having an awareness of suffering. Mm. Um, so mm. you have to have this cognitive, empathic mindfulness that, uh, that suffering is occurring, that I or this is suffering. Um, then you secondly need some sort of sympathetic concern related to being emotionally moved by this suffering. It's, a, it's an effective component. And then I thirdly, a wish to see relief from that suffering. That's an intention, a desire, an intention. And then fourthly, 
a responsiveness or a readiness to hop in there and act to relieve that suffering, motivational, a motivational aspect to it. So a cognitive empathic awareness or mindfulness, uh, an effective component and a, uh, an intention and a motivational aspect. And compassion is very much a motivation. So, yeah. And with that definition, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb and say we can have compassion for sentient and non-sentient elements in the world. Yep. And additionally, therefore, with that definition, we could extrapolate that self-compassion is extending those concepts to oneself. So if, if the suffering is occurring... Um, within myself, directing that to myself and bringing a sympathetic, oh, dear, I'm, this is hard, right, of a sympathetic concern. Mm. Um, and I wish uh, I want to see less suffering in my, for myself. And um, so I was saying, okay, I'm going to do this in order to relieve this suffering. I'm going to bring a soothing touch to myself or I'm going to soften the voice uh, of this critical uh, complainer in my forehead um, or I'm going to say some words that are compassionate for me in my life. Mm. Mm. Um, so, you know, may I be safe? Uh, may I be as well as I can be? It used to be May I Progress, and it turned about oh, three years ago into May I Have Ease of Living, and I thought, gee, it's just turned interesting. I think it might be trying to tell me that I should retire sometime, <laughs> which well, unfortunately didn't work. You failed at that. That's another yeah, thing we put on yeah. your CV, failed retiree. So, John, I'm curious if we go back to something that you mentioned earlier. When you reached out to the meditation teacher when you were first beginning, you used some terminology there. You said, I need help. I'm going deep. Can you talk about going deep? What did that mean for you? And do you think the help was, I'm looking for some sort of self-compassion practice here that's not apparent? I... um. I think I was, but I couldn't put those words to it then. Um, and I, what I ended up looking for and getting very intensely was um, clarity of mindfulness and able to stand back and see the world a lot more clearly. So I understood that it wasn't my fault. It was really an interesting time because I was meditating twice a day but I had got caught into a little cycle of where I was going very, very deep into the meditation. Mm. And for three months, I think I, every time I hit the mat in the morning, I was doing two sessions a day, morning and afternoon, um, for about 45 minutes, I cried for about three months. And I thought, I think I'm stuck. <laughs> I've got in deep somewhere. <laughs> and I still don't know what that was about. But anyway, this meditation teacher um, was able to pull me out of it with uh, some guidance. 
and that was very useful. And, you know, after that, you know, I kept up my meditation practice and, you know, things things would happen. You'd, you'd be going along and saying, and you'd just stop sometimes and you'd go, oh, that happened and I had this behaviour. It was not my fault. And a good example of that was I I had been thinking up until this point that I might have an addictive personality um, because as soon as I really moved out of my parents' house, um, I started smoking and stuff. And But in meditation after about, you know, 20 years after moving out or something, I'm sitting there and... Um, and it suddenly I was, I'd finished the meditation and I was just looking out the window and, and this like light bulb literally went on. And I thought, oh, that's why I smoked. And my father had smoked 60 cigarettes a day from the age of eight up until the age of 78 when they forced him to stop and put him on to you know, things on his arm and stuff. He wasn't very happy about that, but he was in a nursing home, so he had to do as he's told. Um, they said it could kill you, you know, and he said, I'm bloody A78, what are you talking about? <laughs> My Lord, he started at eight. I mean, by the time he was 15, his voice would have sounded like Gus Mercurio. <laughs> no, his voice was always pretty good. Wow. His voice was always, it was an amazing thing. Goodness and... Me. um yeah, and uh, he, um, and so I'd been raised in this household where he smoked inside the whole time, sixty cigarettes a day, except when he was at work, you know. And when I moved out to the sleep out, it took me three days before I went down and bought a packet of cigarettes. And I'm thinking, geez, for up for the next twenty years, I'm I'm thinking, oh, God, I must have this addictive personality, da 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 da. And I realised it was just from passive smoking oh. of my dad smoking, and I thought. Oh, wow. Gee, it was never me. <laughs> and that just came, you know, within five minutes of getting out of a meditation setting. And that was like, bang. And you, you, you would get lots of these little instantaneous moments where you felt as though you had some form of liberation. And, uh, of course, then the kids would come home. Uh, uh, yes, yes, it's very triggering for me at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> I currently have two outside the window shooting each other with water pistols. Uh, John, while I've you know while I I have you, I'm going to continually throw basic questions at you because it's not often you come across someone who's got the better part of, what, 40, 40 years of experience that traverse the, the evidence-based practice, traverse the wisdom traditions, but also traverse, you know, an embodiment. So there's a journey there. You've been a seeker. You've been a experiencer and, and teacher. Now beyond that, you're a mentor. So the basic questions I love to ask of people with this sort of experience, and I think you know what I'm going to ask, but... You've told me what compassion is. Can you clear up for us all what the hell's mindfulness? Because it's a crowded landscape at the moment. It is, as Jad alluded to earlier, it's kind of a buzzword at the moment. And there seems to be several ideas. 
John Julian, what's mindfulness? Um, essentially, mindfulness is to is a process which we participate in in coming into the present moment on purpose without judgment. And it's one of two practices, mindfulness, and then there is meditation, which help us to develop a range of skills which will help us to live a fuller and more uh, functional, compassionate life. And so mindfulness you can use anywhere. There is mindfulness meditation. You can combine them together. But mindfulness is essentially, here we go. This glass of water, I simply, while I'm drinking it, I taste the water. I feel the glass on my lips first. I feel my tongue move. I slowly allow the water around my mouth and swallow, fully tasting it. Or if you can hear, you'll hear a bird, a blackbird singing good night outside my window. And we just come to whatever that is and we be with it. Not trying to label, just being with the tone, the pitch, and the silence between the notes. So we can so we can use mindfulness anywhere, and it's about dropping in, but we can then combine mindfulness with med meditation to sit, and then we will have a very firm object of either coming to a body sway, as I teach, or your breath, or some other object. We like to use an internal object, such as the breath or a body sway, because we have those with us always, rather than a candle or a crystal. You know, it'd be a bit weird at work to be... Oh, my God, I'm getting stressed again. Okay, I'll get out my crystal and walk up and down with it. People that think we're real weirdo. <laughs> so, um, so essentially mindfulness is this ability to come into the present moment and to become aware of what's happening, what's occurring outside and what's occurring uh, in you. So is it a thing that you do or is it a thing that you intend? Is it an intention or is it an action? I think it's both. I think it's 
both. It is an intention that we're developing just to be able to say, hey, dude, what's going on? Yep. And to see the world more clearly. You know, if you ever stop in the middle of a fight with your partner, and you, this is a bit silly. <laughs> Now, that's a label, but um, you suddenly realise the ridiculousness of some of the habits that we do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's probably better to realise them halfway through the fight than <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. there's more damage that's been done. <laughs> well, that's a whole separate episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but mindfulness is also a process. It's a way of being that you mm. learn just to come and drop in to the present moment and to become aware of what is really happening in the world. And, you know, that's a very, very important thing. Um, mm. Yeah, it's hugely important. John, you've shared a lot of these practices with you know many students over the years and also with many of your clients as a as a social worker or therapist how how have they benefited in 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 your opinion from some of these practices what are some perhaps some practical examples or stories you might have of you know if someone's listening to this they're thinking of getting into experimenting with this thing called mindfulness what are some of the benefits you've seen in the work you do okay um basically a number of people have become calmer but you know when i moved to my new location here uh one day i went down the beach and I was uh, pulling out some seaweed, three different types, and looking at it. And I was looking at it and trying to think, yeah, okay, what what am I looking at, and and what what how do I describe it? Um, and a, a lady walked past and said, "Oh, hi, John." And I looked and said, "Oh, hello." And I vaguely recognised this face and. Well, she went in for a swim and then she came out and she came up and said, oh, do you remember me? I said, I remember the face, but I can't remember the name. And she introduced herself. And she, she said, you know, I attended your class, I think it was in 2006 at Jam Jam Buddha Centre, and I had six months to live. And this was 2015. And she said, I had cancer. I was told I had six months left to live. And I did your class. I've done that meditations ever since. And here I am. <laughs> I think, wow, now that's not me. This is why I'm saying this is the process, it's the power of this stuff that we've been handed down. Now, what happens there, of course, if we can relax and become calm, then the cortisol output from the fear-based brain system with the amygdala in the old brain, the cortisol becomes less. And so we have a healthier brain system. And so scientifically and technically, mindfulness will calm down this old brain 
with the amygdala in it and it's more relaxed so then we um it's more relaxed so then we um have a, a better balanced biochemical system. If there's less cortisol going out, we've got less stress hormones going around. And as J. David Creswell found in a survey of men who had done the eight-week MBSR program in just a few years ago, maybe five years ago, um, the chemical interleukin-6, uh, which is associated with cancer, had returned to a healthier balance, mm. um, which is pretty powerful stuff when you're looking at it. That was pure mindfulness. Now, self-compassion adds another component because self-compassion in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, there is quite a lot of evidence now that it tackles the self-critic. Does anybody know what a self-critic is? No, no, no. Not you ever all. heard of it before? No, I never experienced that at all, no. Yes. <laughs> can you briefly describe the self-critic for, for our listeners um who are all probably nodding <laughs> i i thought you'd be good at that michael yeah i i'm sort of getting nervous <laughs> and self-critical as <laughs> can you do it please <laughs> so this so you've got to remember a couple of things about our brain. This old brain's been around for 100, 200 million years. Oh. The cortex has been around for two and a half million years. And our ability to have language out of the Broca center in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, in the, just off the center of the, the, the forehead, um, we've only had language there for 170,000 years. So the way we've always talked before then was through the emotions in the old brain, uh -oh. and these are powerful communication techniques. Now, the self-critic, though, comes out of this cortex, the, often the language centre. Some people just have a feeling of harshness of fear and dread, so it can vary a bit, but most people have a harsh self-critic that is verbal and is attacking. You idiot. Now, I had one person who came in who was going, you idiot. Why do you even think you should apply for that job? You'll never get it. If you go and actually get that job by lying, then they're going to sack you and then you're going to end up in the gutter. You're going to lose the house. You'll lose everything you've worked for. You absolute crazy person. That's mild. <laughs> well done. We're going to keep the PG rating. Yeah, no. <laughs> Some words I thought I better not use. Um, and um, <laughs> and uh, you know, she with self-compassion was able to come about and saying, hang on, I, I'm going to develop another voice here, uh, one that will, hey, 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 self-critic, um, that's a bit harsh. Um, how about we soften our tone a bit? Oh, uh, all right. So, okay, now try it again. Oh, you bloody idiot. Doesn't quite have the same punch, does it? <laughs> Not at all. And 
No. And even changing the tone of the self-critic is a self-compassionate act and the amygdala does not react. The electrification activity in the amygdala uh, goes down if you just don't change the tone of the self-critic. So this harsh, demanding, uh, ravaging self-critic, um, we learn with self-compassion how to come to it, changing its tone and learning what its needs are. And sometimes in therapy or in group, we talk to it and find out. And invariably, we find out the self-critic is really just trying to protect us because it loves us. It's just using things that it learned as a three-year-old or as a six-year-old or as a 10-year-old. And they might have been worked then and been rewarded, but to keep using them and in stronger and stronger, black and white, more difficult tones, etc., uh, becomes less and less functional as we grow older to the challenges we have as an adult. And so it becomes dysfunctional. And so self-compassion teaches us to approach life from a different way. And so, John, speaking to that physiological kind of response is, is what you're sort of suggesting, that the, the brain doesn't kind of know the difference between the inner voice of the critic and an external threat, that if we've got this constant barrage of criticism going on internally, then our, our bodies and minds are in a constant state of, of threat. Is that what, yep. you're, what you're sort of suggesting there? Yes, very much. The amygdala was designed, you know, when we had the reptilian brain only, basically, can can I eat it or can it eat me? Ah! <laughs> it would start running off. <laughs> Immediate response. Um, it's very, very fast. In the old brain, it's 10 times faster than the new brain that, that's two and a half million years old. The, the amygdala in the old brain, our emotional brain, will uh, respond to events through our senses within 10 to 60 milliseconds. The prefrontal cortex, the cortex can take 500 to 600 milliseconds to respond to an event. And this old brain is predominantly still working through the senses, not just, but, you know, it does have links to the cortex, of course. But when it hears a harsh self-critical voice, it can't really tell the difference between that and a snake outside very well. And it only has one way to respond um, in, in, in dealing with a threat, put out a bit of cortisol or a lot of cortisol. And so if it's not sure, it'll start putting out a little bit of cortisol and that will mount daily. And if you keep having a self-critic going um, and that self-critic Oh, God, you're never going to get there, you know. Oh, you're an idiot. Stop, you know. And that's going every day. Then that amoeba is putting out a little bit of cortisol and you're getting more and more stressed, more and more frustrated, uh, more and more scared, more and more distressed, upset, da-da, on and on and on. So your brain reads all of these things uh, like that. And up until now, with pure mindfulness, mindfulness would just calm it down. But self-compassion works on another section of the brain, the limbic brain, the mammalian caregiving brain. And out of this brain, the outcome is oxytocin. 
which helps us to care, to feel calmer, connected, safe, soothed. And when we have that, the oxytocin with some of the natural opiates that our body makes uh, is actually a natural um, antidote to the cortisol output of the fear-based brain system. And the more and more I look at it with the world, uh, people that come in to see me generally, I don't care about the diagnosis that much any anymore. It's useful sometimes to know the intensity or the direction of therapy. Um, but they have patterns. And mostly we have three brain systems, the achievement brain system, which is based around dopamine. And then we have the fear-based brain system based around cortisol. And it has the feelings of the emotions of fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, and so forth. Um, and then we have this affiliative brain system based around oxytocin and some natural and uh, um, natural uh, opiates made in our body. Now I get people to draw the size of those circles on a sheet of paper. Most people will draw a very very large circle for the threat-focused brain system taking up half an A4 page. And off to the left, as they're looking at it, they'll draw a circle for their achievement brain system that might be uh, five to six centimetres wide. And then to the far right, they might have a one centimetre circle for their affiliative brain system. Mm. So their brain systems are completely out of balance and building up the self-compassionate component provides this antidote and more skills in soothing and safeness and calmness and courage in my opinion because <laughs> we can start dealing with the fear and gradually our brain systems become more balanced so what I'm hearing you say is that without the training and these skill sets, we have the unique predisposition towards being both the attacker and the attacked. In the one brain. <laughs> that's, a little, that's a little tragic. It's, it's very tragic. And, we, and do we tell our kids about that? <laughs> do we teach them how to cope with that? Well, I guess that was, yeah, that was where I was going with sort of my next inquiry was to say, is the sociologist in you curious why these skill sets are less prominent, which is a kind way of me saying virtually absent in our society? And do you have, have you come to any conclusions? I'm, I'm, I hope to be publishing an article on this in the very near future. Mm. Um. Yeah, maybe February. I haven't. It, it's it's in the review process at the moment. Uh, it, it's an interesting little article. It's called "Being Real in the Modern World: Healing with Deep Ecology, Mindfulness, and Compassionate Action." 
Very good. Um, and in here, I the nerd, the nerd <laughs> in me is getting very excited about reading this article. <laughs> it's like all my favourite words in the one title. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's it's taken a lot of work. I can tell you that, right? So, and 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 this article sort of briefly reviews the type of world many of us live in currently, and the dangers that humanity now faces. But then it looks at the Buddhist practices of mindfulness, compassion, and the teachings on the four immeasurables, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are an incredible set of skills to live more wisely and skillfully in the world. In in this and in another piece of major work that I'm just starting, I'm arguing that we've lost control of uh, many aspects of society in an industrial consumerist state and that uh, we've been presented with images and things that really are not real, you know, that only certain shaped people can be seen to be beautiful, that everybody has to have coloured hair, uh, in order to be considered normal, or that, for instance, it's even got to the point where people think they don't, we should be able to cure death. When I was a boy, when a person died, the words I most commonly remembered was that he lived a good life. Nowadays, oh, he, he, he lived a long time. As though length of time of living uh, somehow, um, oh, I don't want to use the word trumps, <laughs> is better than the quality Triggering. of a life. <laughs> yeah, is, is that the length of life is better than the quality of life. Yeah. Um, I really wonder about that. And that's just one example of where our um, society has turned around and, and of why we are becoming so alienated from our own self. We are now nothing more than a marketing object. Uh so I see that as a, a major issue. And, you know, people forget buying all of this stuff does not cost money. What it truly costs is time. That's time away from being a partner, from being a father, a mother, and time away from having a caring, compassionate and an effective life because we're just working and that work takes time and that's the real cost of buying all of this stuff. So I'm hearing you say we've shifted, and I'm being very reductive, but we've shifted from being human beings to human doings 
And again, I have a curious question based on your insight and your experience in the industry. Where, where do you think mental health would be with not only the addition of these skills that we mentioned, mindfulness, compassion, skillful communication, but if it was a common practice, can you just give me an imagining, a sociological imagining of perhaps where mental health might be? Okay. Right. Well, where is mental health at? Um, Since 2000, we've chucked billions and billions of dollars at the high incidence disorders in England, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the United States. Billions and billions. And we've not dented the high incidence disorders of substance abuse, depression and anxiety at all. What would a society be like that had far less perfectionism? Perfectionism has been growing since the 1980s by age cohort. Each age cohort that has developed, come into being since the 1980s has higher levels of perfectionism. That creates increased anxiety. Marsha Linehan, the famous therapist of dialectical behaviour therapy for people with severe disorders of emotional dysregulation, says that one of the three prime causes of borderline personality disorder, one of those emotional dysregulation causes, that one of the three prime causes of that is perfectionism. So what the hell are we doing to society with these sorts of developments that we have no apparent control over? The agency of the human being has been reduced Oh, they've led to believe they have greater agency. But when you look at the reality, do I want a hot dog with mustard or without, or a hamburger? That's the choice we've got. They're hardly, in my opinion, real choices. And I'm getting more radical as I get older. (laughs) Yeah. No shit. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been chatting for a while now, John, and one of the themes of the podcast is this idea of the compassionate mess, that, that our lives are messy, our lives are complicated. We all experience suffering in some way, shape or form. And I'm curious, how is your life still a mess and how are you responding to that compassionately? Oh yeah, well, it, basically, my life is 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 probably growing in being a compassionate mess, um, and I, I'm quite happy to be a compassionate mess. You know, I can sometimes stand out in the field or the paddock um, and the, around the house, and you know, it, it, tears will just come up as I sense and feel the things around me and the you know, the stuff that comes along, like I got stopped the other day um, 
one of the ravens that I called Scruffy ended up being a female and she brought her youngest over to meet me. What a thing. What a thing. And that was just amazing. And the magpies, you know, you're standing out there and the magpies hang around. and um, They warble, um, which is just delightful. And, and, you know, we've got a blue tongue lizard. I think we actually got two blue tongue lizards at the moment around the property and you catch sight of those and uh, they're just magnificent. And, and then the other day I, um, don't tell anybody this, but I was down near the cherry trees and the cherries were ripe, so I ate them all. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, that would have got that would have got messy. <laughs> got got very messy, you know. And, and outside of the physical mess, you feel more. You have these honest feelings. You start to understand your emotions, and you're willing to feel them. Mm. So you feel love. You feel uh, care. You 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 also feel the fear you know, the sadness, but you feel them all and you start to understand the functions of these emotions. These emotions were the way we communicated before we had language. And when you start to understand their functions and you come to them, yes, you become this compassionate mess, but it is feels so wonderful and you don't have a fear of them. I've got to say, John, since since doing the self-compassion training with you and then the subsequent teacher training, my, my eyes have become far more leaky and it's been observed <laughs> by by others. I was renowned for being somewhat of a reptile when it came to um, emotional expression and now <laughs> now I've moved into the primate category. <laughs> no, I'm very pleased to hear that. So you, you, you have a direct experience of being a compassionate oh. mess. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, look, you know, I'm still married, so that's just fantastic. One of the greatest, greatest things that I could uh, attribute to meeting you, John, is I'm, I'm still married and, and uh, wonderfully in the middle of it, experiencing it and, and joy, joyously grateful. John, it's been a lovely discussion. I fear that this may um, be the first of, of several. Um, can you just, for the listeners who are, who are curious, uh, what, where, can we, where can they find you, your work, um, and, and the things that you do? Okay. Easiest way is www.thinkinghealthy.com all one word, .com.au, um, and then my Facebook page uh, has a range of uh, things on it, um, but www.thinkinghealthy.com.au is my primary thing. Just Google my name, John Julian, Thinking Healthy, and you'll get to it. Um but my private Facebook page is facebook.com backslash john.julian.18 backslash. Uh, 
and that will take you to a range of places. Literally. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Then we have another page, which is Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, facebook.com backslash mindfulness-based-stress-reduction, um, and a whole string of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon people will be able to search that. Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. John Julian. They'll be able to find you. John, thank you so much for coming and waxing lyrical with us. Um, definitely love to have you back again to speak about your work. Yeah, thank you so much for coming and ch having a chat with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, John. <laughs>